Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into all the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with, these, with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said, a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, good morning. We, we have an interesting passage for us this morning. This is, this is a passage that uh, I am well aware there's different people dealing with the realities of divorce and marriage in different ways. So we'll, we'll dive into this and see how it goes. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'm John, one of the elders here. Uh, if we haven't met, then I look forward to actually connecting with you and meeting you. Let's jump in. Mark is written for disciples. Mark is this roadmap for disciples in a time when there's a lot of confusion about what's going on, who we are, and what we're supposed to be doing. And honestly, right now in the season that we're in with the politics, the election that's about to happen right now this week, uh, this seems even more heightened to us. We need a roadmap in our discipleship. We need a guide and how to walk out our discipleship. Mark is that roadmap. It is a guide for how we're to follow Jesus, how to follow in the way of the cross. And this morning, our passage is very much continuing with this theme of discipleship. It is very much moving along uh, in this theme. We're going to look at one of the most important aspects of our day-to-day lives and how this is impacted by our discipleship, our marriages, our relationships. I completely understand that this topic, marriage, divorce, ultimately remarriage, is a sensitive topic. Uh, Many people might even feel beat up by this passage. As we read this passage, I'm sure there are some people that feel attacked by this passage. Jesus is not picking on you. He is not, uh, not trying, this is not trying to belittle or make anybody feel less than. I think, honestly, if, if, if people have used this passage to weaponize this passage, I think they're missing the gospel here. So our goal, what, what we're going to try to do today is try to get to the gospel in this passage. Where is the good news for us as disciples of Jesus in this passage? 
So let's, let's jump into the story. What's actually happening here? Jesus is on his way. That's the theme we're looking for, right? Is Jesus is on the way. He's on the way to the cross. He's on the way to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. And here what we find is that Jesus has gone from the region of Judea. He's crossed the Jordan. This whole section of Mark is to be understood as discipleship lessons while on the way to the cross. We as disciples of Jesus are to live on the way, following our master as he leads us on the road of discipleship, ultimately to the cross. It's entirely possible, contextually, that Jesus is somewhere near where John was baptizing on the Jordan River. Why is that important? We see here that the Pharisees come to test Jesus. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's the question they pose. Now, the Pharisees were experts in the Torah. They were experts in the law of Moses. They knew full well that the law of Moses allowed for divorce. So this was not, this was not them asking for an honest dialogue about divorce and marriage. They were attempting to trap Jesus. They were trying to trick Jesus into saying something that would upset Herod. And then hopefully Jesus would go the way of John the Baptist and he would not be a problem for them anymore. What had happened, ultimately, what got John the Baptist arrested was his public critique of the marriage of Herod and to his wife Herodias who was his brother's ex-wife. The Pharisees assumed that Jesus would do the same thing as John and that they could finally be rid of him. Let's look at how this actually plays out. I love this about Jesus. Jesus engages them on their level. He doesn't play around. He engages them where they're at. And so he says, he knows that they're going to go to Moses. These are, these are experts in the law of Moses. So he says, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they go to this passage in Deuteronomy 24. Essentially, Deuteronomy 24 law of Moses, it allows for divorce in passing. It really was a prohibition against a man remarrying his former wife if she had married another man in the interval. But in passing, uh, the validity of divorce is assumed. It's incidental sort of to what's actually happening in Deuteronomy 24. Really, the intent of this law, the intent of Deuteronomy 24, was to protect the woman who legally had very little protection in that culture. So in ancient times, for the most part, a husband could divorce his wife for any reason he so chose, for any reason, if he just was displeased with her. And Deuteronomy 24 was put in place to protect her 
so that she had some rights in that process. And while indeed Deuteronomy 24 is the law of Moses, it does not satisfy Jesus for the answer to his question. What was his question? What did Moses command you? Jesus responds to them. He says, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. Jesus says, Deuteronomy 24 was given because your hearts are hard. Moses did this, according to Jesus, because of hardness of heart. This is a loaded term for the Hebrews. The hardness of heart is this Hebrew idiom that describes spiritual stubbornness. The heart in the, in the idea of the Hebrews represented the total response of a person, the, total, the sum total of what made up that person. The idea of being hard of heart is that the entire disp- your entire disposition is in opposition to God. You are unmoved by his, by his mercy and his goodness. Hardness of heart is described as a person that ignores, spurns, rejects the gracious offer of God to be a part of our lives. Hardness of heart is best probably pictured as like a callus. Anybody play guitar? I don't actually play guitar, but I know guitar players have to build up these calluses on their fingers so that it doesn't hurt. I mean, wrong hand. Uh, So that it doesn't hurt when they hold down the strings. Or I'm, I'm, I'm reminded even of like, we go, if you, if you have a past in the military, if you've been through the military, you have to go through a process of training to where you can deal with hard situations. That's part of the thing. That there's a development of a callus that happens, a hardening that happens. So in other words, Deuteronomy 24 I like the NLT even called it this. It's a concession. This is not the intention of marriage. You don't learn how to fly an airplane by studying how to make crash landings. And this is what's happening here. Is that we don't learn the, God's intention for marriage and for, for godly relationships by looking at the allowance for divorce. Same is true. The exceptional measures that are necessary when a marriage fails does not help us ultimately discover God's intention for marriage. Jesus' goal is to recover God's will for marriage and the implications for his disciples. He's not here to argue about the possible exceptions. Divorce is a concession. It is not God's original design. What is God's original design? That two become one flesh. That is God's will and his preference. So Jesus brings them all the way back to creation. Goes to Genesis. Which is also Torah. Jesus believed that this was written by Moses. This was the command of Moses. Verse 6 here, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees quote Moses, who doesn't command or encourage divorce. He allows for it and places strict regulations on it. But that wasn't answering Jesus' actual question. What did Moses command? Jesus doesn't say that Moses was wrong for giving permission in Deuteronomy. He instead brings us back to Genesis so that we can get the correct picture of God's intentions. What was the Creator's will for marriage? Genesis is where we find the original command from Moses that God is, or that Jesus is looking at here. It's quite clear in Genesis, the bond of husband and wife creates not merely a partnership or a working agreement, it creates an an entire new entity. A new human being is created. Marriage is about a covenant, a commitment. It's way more, I think, than our, our culture actually gives it room to be. It's not just a partnership. As far as Jesus is concerned, what Genesis says about marriage is the law. This is what God says. This is the ideal. Jesus' comment on Mosaic permission, on this whole Deuteronomy 24 thing, is important because I think it shows ultimately where Jesus is going with his ministry. What is he after? He says, Moses gave you this rule because of, the hard, because of your hardness of heart. We have the law because we have hard hearts. That's what Jesus says. Elsewhere, we know that the law is a tutor. It leads us ultimately to Jesus. It leads us to the ideal. In other words, Israel... In Moses' day and in ours, this is, this, is, this is true of us, was not able to fulfill the, the divine intention for life, for relationships, for marriage. We were incapable of doing that. Our hearts were hard. And they needed the law to help point them in the right direction, but that's a second best reality. Hard-heartedness, the inability to have your heart in tune with God's best intention and plan, it thwarted God's ultimate longing for a renewed humanity. The problem was not the ideal. It wasn't Genesis. It wasn't the law. The law is a tutor that leads us to Jesus, but it was with the people. Israel was, when it all came down to, just like everybody else, hard-hearted, eager to take God's precious gift of genuine humanness and exploit it and abuse it. So there had to be protections put in place. This is the sin nature that we wrestle with. Naturally, we are inclined to pursue our own interest, our own best good, and not think of the best of others or, let alone, the divine intention. Jesus is pointing us to the ideal. 
This should remind us of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says things like this. He says in uh, Matthew 5, 21, he says, You have heard that it said, by our ans- said to our ancestors, Do not murder. And whoever murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. And whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Or again, he says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is after the ideal. His intent is that we as disciples would set our focus on living out the ideal. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is a great picture of what God's ideal for his disciples is. But in order for that to be true, in order for this to make sense, Jesus has to be offering a cure for hard-heartedness. The only way we can actually do what he's saying to do in the Sermon on the Mount or in this passage that we're looking at today is if there's a cure for hard-heartedness. If he is painting this picture of the ideal and this return to the standard of Genesis, he is either being hopelessly idealistic, and honestly I think most people read these passages, they read the Sermon on the Mount and they think that Jesus is just being idealistic. That's not actually how anybody can live. Or, and this is what I think is the truth, he believes that the kingdom that he's bringing will bring about a way for our hearts to be softened towards him. Jesus came to fulfill the promise of Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel 11 verse 19 says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be, they shall be my people and I will be their god for us as disciples of Jesus following in the way of the cross we are to aim for the ideal and not be comfortable with the exceptions specifically here in this passage Marriage is a representation of Christ's covenant and his love for his church. This is important to think about. Ephesians chapter 5, sort of the, uh, the hallmark of Pauline teaching on marriage. This is where like, we're doing premarital counseling. We spend a lot of time in Ephesians 5 and look at, look at the role of marriage. Ephesians 5.22. Let's just read this passage. It's so good. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. But who loves, he who loves his wife loves himself. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the important part right here. Verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. I think often we read that passage, and we think that our marriage is, our relationships are the picture that then is an analogy for God's interaction with the church. I think we flip that. The way that God is, the way that Jesus cares about his bride, is the truth, that is the reality And our marriage, our relationships, is supposed to be pictured after that. This is not easy. That's, I mean, honestly, if you, Ephesians 5, like if you spend some time meditating on that, like we are all indicted and guilty. Husbands, do do we love our wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her? To do this, it takes a tender heart. It takes a soft heart. We have to allow Jesus to accomplish what he set out to do, to take our heart of stone and to give us a tender heart. We have to allow him to work in our hearts so that we can can actually seek and live out a way that would prefer other people. That's not our natural inclination. Marriage is supposed to be an image of Christ's never-ending love for his church. It is to show the truth of how Christ loves the church and how the church is to be devoted to him. I read this week, John Piper said this, Therefore, if the church ever cuts off or disregards, sorry, if Christ ever cuts off or disregards the church, and the point is that'll never happen, then a man may divorce his wife. And if the church, the blood-bought bride of Christ, ever ceases to be the blood-bought bride of Christ, then a wife may divorce her husband. That's his point. It's never going to happen. And as long as Christ keeps his covenant with his bride, the church remains the chosen people, then the meaning will include what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is calling us as disciples to a higher standard that's rooted in the original teachings of Moses, the creation account, not the legal stipulations of the law that were a byproduct of hardness of heart. Disciples of Jesus are called to be people of massive forgiveness, massive love, people of gentleness that care for and take care of the people around us. We are to to display the gospel in our marriages. Marriage among Christians is primarily meant to tell the truth of the gospel. It is a witness of the good news. Does your marriage tell the world of the loving, faithful, gentle love of Jesus? Does your marriage show the world what it looks like for, for the bride, for the church, to serve faithfully Jesus.
The good news, the gospel here in this, in this story for us today is that Christ came to conquer the hardness of heart. So whether married, divorced, single, remarried, wherever you find yourself, the main point here is to keep our promises and to, to seek to display the gospel in our relationships, wherever that lands for you. I know that for some of us, this passage, like I said at the beginning, is painful, and perhaps it's even been used and weaponized to make you feel like you're living in sin if you've been remarried after a divorce. Is that the takeaway that we should have from this passage? I think not. For sure, the last two verses here, 11 and 12, Jesus has some direct hard words with his disciples. 11 and 12, he says to them in private, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. I do think it's really important to point out this, this theme here. Jesus had that hard, direct conversation in private with his disciples out of care for them. Way too often, I think we take these things and sometimes without knowing, we weaponize them and we use them to cut people down. That's not Jesus' point in this passage. For sure, he draws a hard line. But you're not to read this passage and feel cut down or that if you've remarried, you've somehow committed the unforgivable sin. First of all, if that was true, Jesus would be in opposition with Moses. And in, in Matthew's version of this, he actually adds other examples. Um, I think the point here, though, is not the exception. The point is to look for the ideal. I think the idea is that if we're looking for the exception, this is going to Sermon on the Mount kind of stuff, if we're focused on the exception, we're looking, at, looking for a way out, our hearts are hard and we've already missed the mark. The good news is that he is always faithful to his covenant. He is the perfect picture of marriage. He will never leave or forsake his bride. That's you and I. Even if we sin and fall away, he is faithful. And he will come again. He will always take you back. Yes, even if you're divorced and remarried, he will take you back. I know this. There's a story in John 4 of a woman that Jesus encounters. And he says, he, he knows, he asks her about her husband. And she says, uh, I don't have it in front of me. But she has, he knows that she has had five husbands. And the man that she is with now is not her husband. Yet he makes himself known to her. I think the takeaway for us here as disciples, just like in our passage we looked at two weeks ago. Remember there was that, the last piece of that passage two weeks ago is to live at peace with one another. No relationship is more susceptible to causing yourself or another disciple to stumble than your marriage. 
So for cross-bearing disciples, for disciples of Jesus that are following in the way of the cross, the goal is no longer a righteous divorce, but to be imitations and to display the grace of God. I want to finish out this morning with just asking some questions that you can think about this week. As you take some time, we've been encouraging you to get together in groups of three or four every week and discuss the passage. How do, you, how do we apply this? How do we live this out? For all of us this morning, whether married, divorced, single, wherever you find yourself, how do your relationships reflect the gospel? Husbands, does your wife's friends or maybe your mother-in-law see a picture of Christ in the way that you sacrificially love your husband or your wife? Wives, same goes for you. Does your husband's friends see a picture of the way the church lives in faithful love and honor of Jesus in the way that you relate with your husband? Does your marriage point people to Jesus? Maybe you're single. Does your singleness point people to Jesus? If you're divorced, does the way that you interact with your ex show your children or your family what grace and forgiveness looks like? Does it display the gospel? Does the way you live in community paint a picture of the good news for your neighbors? Some stuff to think about this week. As we close, I just want to pray for us. The band come back up and close out. I want to pray that we would, that Christ would continue his work of giving us a heart of flesh. This is what he's after. He's after a tender heart that's soft towards him, pliable that we are moved by conviction, that we're moved by what is in front of us. So I just want to pray and then we can close out in some worship. Father, I thank you that this is what Jesus came to do. He came to take our hearts of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. God, I thank you that you've made a way when it seemed like there was no way. God, I ask that we would be people of massive love, massive forgiveness, massive compassion. That even if we're not going through hard situations, we would look out for and care for our friends and family that are. Because your standards, your ideal, brings us all on a level playing field. We have all sinned and all fallen short. I'm reminded of the story when Jesus, you stooped down and you drew a a line in the sand. said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. God, I pray that that would be our disposition. That you would give us a tender heart, even towards our brothers and sisters towards our spouses, towards our family, our exes. God, we ask that you would have your way, that you would continue to show us who you are and how you work. 
We love you, Jesus. Amen.